Hello, I'm your host, Donna Carrick, and I'd like to welcome all our deadly friends to Dead to Rights, the podcast. We've got a terrific lineup for you today. On Season 1, Episode 9, titled appropriately, Writer's Block. Our author interview this week is with Kevin P. Thornton, an established member of Canada's crime writing community and the author of a number of short stories. In fact, today's Readers on the Run segment will feature Kevin's very funny crime story, Writer's Block, which first appeared in World Enough and Crime and was a finalist for the prestigious 2017 Arthur Ellis Best Short Story Award. But before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about writer's block. For an author, there are few things more debilitating and feared than the dreaded block. It stifles our creativity. It dampens and in some cases kills our enthusiasm for our chosen art. It can take many forms. The incessant cleaning of one's house, a sudden passion for cooking, Endless outdoor walks or time spent with our loved ones. You get the picture. Of course, in all seriousness, these are all good ways, in fact, healthy ways to spend one's time. But for a writer, while other things often take priority in life, it remains essential to carve out solid, consistent time with our muses. That would include, but is not limited to, time spent staring at the clouds, researching online, muttering to oneself while testing out various ways to hold a kitchen knife in an imaginary battle. Now, how does one beat the block? Well, I'm a huge believer in spending quiet time with my characters. If I'm left alone with them for a sufficient number of hours or days or weeks, they will inevitably, sooner or later, tell me their stories. I'm also an advocate of the storyboard, and its kissing cousin, the Ark. I'm fond of outlines, trees, anything upon which I can hang fragments of ideas and shards of time that can ultimately be woven into a story. Writers, if you find yourselves well and truly blocked, there are a few questions you can ask yourself. The first one is, is something happening in your real life that is holding you back? Are there family, work, or health issues that really must be dealt with? If the answer is yes, cut yourself some slack. You're not going to produce any literature of any merit until those issues are resolved, so you might as well stop pummeling your head against that block and fix whatever is broken, or if it can't be fixed, ride it out. The second question I would ask is, do you really love your current set of characters? Do you love your story? Because if you don't, the answer is obvious. Don't be a plot hoarder. Throw that one out and get to work on something you do love. The sooner, the better. Clean out the mental closet. Wash that drivel right out of your hair. The third thing I would ask is, are you afraid of success? We hear a lot of talk about the fear of failure, and that's a very real challenge many of us face. We'll talk about it on another day. But I want you, listeners, to consider for a moment the possibility that you might be afraid on some level of success, of how it might change your life, of finding out that, as you suspected, success in the arts is not always measured in money, or in accolades, or in any of the customary measures we expect in our fantasies. 
In the arts, success is, simply put, being creative, of being productive, of knowing that our art is constantly evolving, emerging, improving, of working toward the betterment of our art every day, of paying our dues, and of networking with others in the industry, of competing for the chance to tell our stories, to share them with readers and with listeners, to having one, just one, reader tell us they were moved, or they laughed out loud, or they were shocked or otherwise affected by our work, by our words. And that, my deadly friends, is success for a writer. Now, please stay with me as I read for you a truly comic crime caper by Kevin P. Thornton, titled Writer's Block. Writer's Block by Kevin P. Thornton From World Enough and Crime, an Anthology of Crime Stories, Carrick Publishing, 2016 Editor's Note Kevin Thornton is sure to tickle your funny bone in this inventive and ingenious tale of an author's worst nightmare. The problem with blood is that it sticks to your skin, said Jonathan, in between screams of the electric saw. Layla glanced down at her naked body and then across the room to where her clothes lay, piled on a small table, away from the red spray. It's all very well, washing it off in the first ten seconds, he continued, but if you let it set, you'll have the very devil of a time getting it off. Once we're finished, we'll have to help each other. Make sure we get rid of it. This was not a normal day. It had started with the coffee machine dripping all over the counter. Then there was the perfectly hideous accident that wasn't really her fault. And now, she thought, now she had progressed to taking off her clothes in front of her neighbor and helping him cut his wife into little pieces. No, it was definitely not a normal day. I'll be able to clean myself, I'm sure, she said. She was starting to dislike Jonathan. He put the saw down and picked up a bucket. Shouldn't be long now, he said. We'll take her through to the carnivores, and with any luck, Jessica will be tiger poop in about eight hours. He started to slop the remains into the container, and then, when he noticed he wasn't getting any help, he turned to look. Jessica, said Layla. You told me your wife's name was Mandy. I'm stuck, said Enoch. Yes, dear, said his wife. Enoch and Portia had been together for 15 years, and he loved her profoundly, even if she rarely listened when he needed her to. I put a shotgun shell through my foot, and I'm bleeding to death. That's nice, dear, said Portia. Enoch began to count the seconds silently. One Missouri Santa, two Missouri Santa, three. At eleven, Portia frowned and said, You did what? Why didn't you say something? We'll need to call an ambulance. We need to. She was stopped by her husband's giggling. Enoch, that's not funny. It was pretty funny, actually, darling. I do wish you'd listen to me when I need you to. All right, I'm listening now, 
Do you remember two years ago, CBC ran a page-turner challenge with the Crime Writers of Canada? Crime Writers, hmm, aren't those your friends you meet every year in Toronto to dress up and party? Enoch could feel the steam rising. Portia, please try not to demean my vocation, so... Bloody Words is one of the finest crime-writing conventions in the world, and the networking I do is very important for my career. Yes, dear. Enoch stopped himself from saying, Don't yes, dear me. He breathed gently, slowly. If you remember, I came fifth in the competition. Anyway, I met one of the judges at this last conference, and she said she'd love to see the finished story. So, why are you stuck? You entered it two years ago. Send it to her, said Portia. The competition was about writing the first 250 words of a page-turner story. I did that. Here, read this. He turned his laptop across the kitchen table. Portia read it. It didn't take long. It's very macabre. It's supposed to be, said Enoch. There's also no way out. For the sake of an amusing 250 words, I have painted myself into a corner and I can't extricate myself. How did they end up in a big cat feeding room? What is the nature of their relationship in that they are both naked and covered in blood? Is the coffee pot significant? Why can't Jonathan remember the name of the woman he is dismembering? They are all impossible questions. It won't do, you know. I am such an idiot. Well, said Portia, why don't you write something else? Because, said Enoch, slowly, infuriatingly, Juanita Great Rock is one of the most important publishers of short stories in North America. She has never shown the slightest interest in my work until now. If I can write this story... It'll open up a whole new market to me. Short stories are in, you know, especially after Alice got her Nobel. Nobody's ever received one for short stories before. Portia bit her lip. She loved to jerk Enoch's strings when he displayed his tenuous grasp of literary knowledge, but she sensed now was not the time. Well, you have that appointment with your agent today, Maybe he can talk you through this block, dear. Now I must dash. Don't forget to take Misery for a walk. I don't have time now. It'll have to wait until later. That bloody Misery. If she tries to run away again, I'm going to let her. She is a bloody Misery. I wish we'd named her after someone else. Is there a writer called Stupid-Ass Mutt in the Canadian canon? Now, dear... Beagles are excitable dogs. They always follow their noses. A brisk walk will calm both of you down. As she turned to leave, she couldn't resist showing off. Ernest Hemingway, Rudyard Kipling, Nadine Gordimer, Rabindranath Tagore. What are you talking about, said Enoch. Monroe wasn't the first. All four of them were awarded the Nobel, in part because of their short story writing. She was halfway down the driveway when she heard his retort. Valiant, but as always, misinformed. Hemingway doesn't count. 
He didn't write short stories, just stories that were short. The hunterman watched the woman leave. He was hiding on the trail in the trees behind the house, and he had with him four different ways to kill. He wished he could have brought a gun, even a rifle, but that was impossible. Apart from the general difficulty of getting a license in Canada, the terms of his release had been quite clear. He had to stay away from all shotted weapons, all arms dealers, all gun ranges, and he had to stay on his medication. One out of two wasn't bad. He watched the actions below. The bastard had large, uncovered back windows on his wide-lot home, and it was easy to see him walking around the living area. Presently, he went through into the bedroom and bathroom. The hunterman knew from previous scouting sessions that was a preamble to going out. He relocated to position two, which offered an open line of sight to the door. Enoch paused to pick up the car keys on the shelf. He drove an Audi, top of the range back when he was at the top of his game. It was ten years old. He opened the door and felt it push back against him, accompanied, or it must have been preceded by, a rushing sound through the air. What the hell was that, he thought. Then he saw the arrow sticking two inches through the solid wood door, outside to in, and his legs jellified below him as he sank to the ground. Scrabbling back into the sanctuary of his home, unable to think of a word to describe what he felt. The hunterman cursed under his breath. How unlucky was that! Planning, damn it, planning! The six Ps! He hiked his pack up onto his shoulders and headed out on Evac Route 4. As he ran shuffled, he chanted the Marine's mantra in his head. Imagining he was Clint Eastwood, circa Heartbreak Ridge. Proper planning prevents piss-poor performance. Proper planning prevents piss-poor performance. Proper planning prevents piss-poor performance. No, sir, I don't think you were the victim of an assassination attempt, said the Mountie, Sergeant Ramsbottom. I think it was a hunting accident, and when we find the shooter... He will likely be a city boy with a fondness for Robin Hood and beer. The sergeant wasn't sure of the level of importance one should have to jump from an attempted murder to a putative assassination, but he felt fairly safe concluding that Enoch Powell, aged 35, occupation writer, did not qualify. Also, he thought to himself, any half-decent attempting murderer would have looked at which way the door was hinged before firing. Enoch reassured himself with Sergeant Ramsbottom's words. He was right. Of course he was. Nobody wanted to kill him, surely. They walked out together and he phoned his agent to let him know he was on his way. Can't you use it in the story? With the newspaper article, it could get you back into the public eye. The news will be in tomorrow's Fort Clearwater Gleaner. I can't possibly have anything written by then. Saul Coldman sighed. He had been Enoch's agent through thick and thin. Lately, thin was winning. 
That was fine if you were a ramp model, less so an agent with ex-wives to feed. Enoch, there were times when I could phone you at seven at night saying I had a market for 3,000 words and you'd have it done by eight in the morning. What's happened to my young and hungry anarchist who was going to turn crime writing on its head? Do you remember the reviews? The most interesting voice since Elmore Leonard. Powell plots like Ed Hoch. Scares like Stephen King. And is as elegiac as Dennis Lehane. Yes, Saul, I remember the taglines. There haven't been too many of those lately. Saul shrugged. He possessed many shrugs, as if he had memorized Fiddler on the Roof. This one said, What can I do? I can only work with what you give me. As if tossing a lifeline, Enoch said, I'm working on something. The series? Is Nick Coyle coming back? Enoch gave a shake of his head. A new character? A new series? Again the shake. That idea you had about the detective with the cat that solved crimes? Er, the one that ate canned meat? I'll even take that. What was the name again? Sam Spade? No, that idea was too silly. Sam breathed a sigh of relief. I'm going to finish my page-turner entry. Saul, who had been buoyed by the possibility of having something to sell, sagged back into his chair. That's the one you've been stuck on for two years. Mm-hmm. I'm still stuck, as a matter of fact. So how will you unstick yourself? I'm waiting for a brilliant idea from my agent. You never listen to my ideas, said Saul. You never take my advice. Why now? Portia said so. She's usually right. Saul had always liked Portia. He saw her as an ally in the quest to keep Enoch earning money. He leaned further back in feigned contemplation, then slowly came forward, hoping he looked inspired. I still think the arrow in your door this morning is the place to start. Go home and write how you felt. Treat it as if it was an assassination attempt. It failed, so find out other ways people are assassinated and incorporate them. What about Juanita Greatrock? She wants the story I started at the page-turner competition. You let me worry about Juanita. Go home and write. Now. Go. What happened to all the boozy lunches you used to buy me, said Enoch. The hotel does a decent prime rib buffet and has an excellent wine list. Those lunches were paid for from your commission, back when I was still actually earning a commission from you. Now I have to see my other writer in town, the historian, and I'm on the last flight out of Fort Clearwater tonight, as I have to be in Calgary in the morning. I'll stop by this evening on the way to the airport, and I want to see the beginnings of a masterpiece. The hunterman was a much better killer in his mind's eye than in reality. He knew all the theory, and he had even read several of Andy McNabb's books, stopping only when he heard they had been ghostwritten. He had planned every stop, had backup plans and multiple ways to exit every killing spot. The truth was he hadn't expected anything to go wrong. By all rights, the bastard should be dead now. Except for the damned door. 
He drove back to his base camp, also known as Room 104 of the Northern Lights Motel and Strip Bar. In theory, packing all the gear in his faux U.S. Marines backpack up into the tree line had seemed bold and dashing. In his mind's eye, he was a lean, mean killing machine. In reality, he was a 350-pound stroke waiting to happen, and the walk into the forest and back had turned his soft, flabby body into a sticky, sweaty mess. If he were going to get to killing site two in ready mode, he would have to shower and change so he didn't stick out like a painful opposable digit. Enoch left the hotel and walked along the outside to the free parking lot two blocks away. Ten years ago, he would have paid the valet. He glanced at his reflection in the shop windows. He looked seedy and tweedy, like a duke who'd fallen on hard times, running out of Atkinson's Grimshaws to peddle. His Harris jacket had been bought on his first Scottish book tour, and his walking shoes were by a distinguished Seville Row cobbler, who had his size on file so he could, at a whim, order up an evening slipper or an elegant tennis shoe. Something else I haven't done in a while. He saw that one of his shoelaces was coming undone. Better tie it, he thought, bending down. I'll bet they cost a fortune to replace. Handmade shoelaces. Humph. Probably rolled in urine on the thighs of an Orkney lass until there. The glass window of a shop exploded, and shards of glass bounced off the ground and into Enoch's hair, beard, and favorite tweed jacket. The shuriken is, in the right hands, a deadly killing weapon. Typically a star-shaped, keenly sharpened throwing device, it reached the pinnacle of its popularity in the Hong Kong martial arts B-movies popular in the last part of the 20th century. Bruce Lee or Chuck Norris would calmly propel one of them across a warehouse, and it would slice an inch into someone's throat, where it would sever the carotid artery and cause a dramatic, blood-spouting death. The hunterman hadn't really practiced with them, so he wasn't as skilled as Bruce Lee. Not by a long way. His first attempt, from a distance of about 40 yards, didn't even reach the target bouncing instead off the middle of the road and landing in the gutter. Typically, the hunterman blamed his tools. Shit, shuriken, he whispered to himself, taking it up as a perversely pleasing chant. Shit, shuriken, shit, shuriken, shit, shuriken. All the while he was getting closer to his oblivious bastard target. He threw another one, this time an underhanded flick. He felt it slice open the pad on his index finger and through the pain he saw it miss the target by ten feet and embed itself into a plastic plant pot hanging outside the cannabis accessory store. The hunterman wanted to scream at the injustice of his luck. He pulled out the last two, ignored the pain of his bleeding finger and hurled them both with all his might, more or less on target. And... The bastard ducked. The hunterman allowed the momentum of his throw to take him down the alley next to the shop while the glass was still shattering. As he ran, he scared the bee Jesus out of two Rastafarians 
who stood at the back of the store testing their new bongs. This was one of the strangest days Sergeant Ramsbottom had ever experienced during the two years he had been posted in Fort Clearwater. Taken in isolation, the incident with the arrow and then the window at the smoke shot might have been considered unusual, but not shocking. There were certain God-fearing people in town who objected to the shop's existence, and this wasn't the first time it had come under attack. Ramsbottom, though, was a good investigator. After the arrow had penetrated Powell's front door, he had backtracked the shot to a clearing that had shown evidence of a large, heavy man, size 12 boot marks, deeply imprinted. He had also just finished speaking to the two Rastafarians, who were less mellow than they should have been, given what they had just inhaled. Ramsbottom knew them both. The older, Tommy John Tosh, rarely had anything coherent to say, but he had nodded fiercely when his bong buddy, Dreadlock Davy, had told him, "'We nearly been knocked over by fucking Humpty Dumpty, and he was already cracked, mon.' "'What do you mean, cracked?' He was leaking, man. Leaking? What was leaking? Egg yolk? No, man. Blood. From his hand. Which was when Sergeant Ramsbottom began to suspect maybe somebody was trying to kill Enoch Powell, age 35, occupation, writer. The technician had already found blood on the road, and he had found the four shuriken, three of them coated with blood. In his mind... Sergeant Ramsbottom drew a line between the largest patch of blood and the spot where the two shuriken had been found. They would have hit Enoch if he hadn't bent down to tie his shoelaces. Ramsbottom dialed the number for the detachment. Send someone inconspicuous and out of uniform to the crime scene. He hung up. He didn't have enough evidence to be sure, but it was worth having someone follow Enoch Powell for a while. Ramsbottom found Enoch and went to talk to him. Sergeant, Enoch said, I had nothing to do with this, I promise. I was just walking by. I know, you're free to leave, but before you do, can you tell me where you're headed now? Well, my lunch plans fell through, so I was going to meet my wife at her work and take her to the sandwich shop. So, that's what happened, said Enoch, as Portia delicately nibbled on her lobster aioli, sprouts and jerkin on rye. His wife had the strangest taste in food combinations, as if she were pregnant, something that sadly had never occurred. It sounds as if you have something to go home and write about. Go home and write? Did Saul Coldman phone you? Are you two conspiring against me? Don't be silly, dear. There's no conspiracy. We both just want what's best for you. Enoch studied his wife with a keener eye than usual. While it was rare for a writer not to be besieged by conspiracy theories, Enoch had foolishly never believed himself to be so inclined. And yet, he had just told his wife about two most extraordinary events, and she had seemed to be almost unconcerned. Enoch started to panic inside, where it bubbled like indigestion. No, not Portia. Surely she wasn't behind this. And, as all conspiracy theorists do, 
Enoch put two and two together and made twenty-two. They were unable to have babies. He was not making money as a writer. They had moved to the backwoods of northern Alberta so he could regain his muses. She must be unhappy, he thought. Was she unhappy enough to hire a killer? Portia, he said, standing rapidly. I have to go. All right, dear, said Portia, who was pretending to listen, but was already thinking about how best to rearrange the shelves of wool at the back of her arts and crafts store. She always tried to listen to Enoch, she really did, but sometimes his whining exasperated her, and she found her mind wandering. It was only when she saw he had left the second half of his bacon and sausage ciabatta that she grew concerned. In all their time together, she had never seen him walk away from a sandwich. The hunterman was speechless with rage and pain, a powerful combination that served to drive him forward even harder than before. He had wrapped his hand in a handkerchief and circled back to his rental car. He wanted to return to the hotel and clean himself up, but he had no idea where his quarry would go next. Holding his hand tightly closed, he screamed when he had to put the car in drive. Five minutes later, he was in a lay-by on the edge of town, using a first-aid kit he'd bought in Cabela's on his way up. The hunterman loved outdoor stores. They didn't judge you by the way you looked, as long as you had a credit card. He nearly fainted when he opened his hand and the blood started to flow again. He didn't know what to do, as he hadn't read any of the instruction manuals, so he settled for closing his fist and wrapping a large, absorbent bandage around everything, leaving only his thumb free. It meant he wouldn't be able to use the compound bow. But he still had two other means of killing. This time he was going to get close to his target. Make it personal. As he drove back, trying to channel the attitude of John Rambo, he thought about his next move. Stake out her shop, he thought. It was, as it turned out, a good thought, which was lucky for the hunterman, as it was the only one he had. He arrived there just in time to see his quarry go into the store. Three minutes later, he left with the woman. The hunterman followed them to the sandwich shop, then calculated his next move. If the bastard left here and went to his car in the public parking lot, he would walk past the Dairy Dive Bar. Nearby was the spot the hunterman needed. Despite the pain in his hand, the hunterman went to that good place in his head, the one where he always agreed with himself. The plan was back on. The execution would be executed. Enoch left the sandwich shop at almost a full run. No, he thought. It's impossible. Portia loves me. By the time he turned the corner, he'd remembered the large insurance policy over his head and the look of pain on her face when she found out why she wasn't getting pregnant. Her reaction to his reaction when she had suggested a sperm donor. Over my dead body, he'd said at the time. Maybe she'd taken him at his word. He crossed the road to pass in front of the dairy and take the pathway to the parking lot. Ceramic knives have a lot of advantages. Chief among them is they won't set off a metal detector. 
The hunterman hadn't bought it for this reason, as he had not encountered any metal detectors during the drive up from Edmonton. Instead, he'd bought it because it was cool. Ceramic knives also have one big flaw. They break easily. The early ones used to shatter when dropped, and although they are better made today, they are still susceptible to damage if you are unlucky. The hunterman was unlucky. His plan was simple. About halfway to the car park, the path opened out so there was room for a bench. The hunterman, having given up all efforts at subterfuge, planned to wait there for the bastard and shove the knife between his ribs, reaching the heart and causing instant death. He saw his target turn onto the path about twenty yards away. The hunterman reached for the knife, then realized the sheath was strapped to his belt for a right-hander, the hand he had swathed in bandages. A lesser man would have cried, but the hunterman believed himself made of sterner stuff. He reached round frantically with his left hand, desperately trying to grab the knife to unclip it. Enoch was so busy analyzing his conspiracy thoughts that he was barely five yards away when he noticed an astonishing sight. There was an extraordinarily fat man trying to contort himself into some maniacal, impossible position. He was flailing away with his left arm, trying to reach something behind his back. He reminded Enoch of a fat corgi chasing his tail. Enoch thought to offer to help him, but one look at the man's face made him keep moving. He looked apoplectic, and his ears appeared as if they would detach and ignite. They were so red. Enoch hurried by as quickly as was decently possible. I wonder what's got him so upset, he thought, followed by, Where do I know that man from? The hunterman couldn't believe it. Three times in one day the bastard had walked away from his destiny. Then, as his quarry hurried by, the knife came free, and the hunterman had a tenuous grip on the blade. He tried to swing it out from under his jacket, intent on grabbing it by the handle and rushing after his target. The hilt caught on the edge of his jacket, and as he kept pulling, the spring-like effect shot it out of his hand and into a high arc above his head, back toward the road and the dairy dive bar. The hunterman started running after it, but he hadn't a hope in hell. It fell to the ground on the hard concrete, shattering into slivers. The hunterman, still running, didn't notice the young woman in his path trying to stop him. He crashed into her, pausing to see if she was all right, but the sickening thud of her head against the wall persuaded him to keep going. Constable Allison Campbell had come to the RCMP detachment straight from training, and she'd been in Fort Clearwater for six months. She wasn't the first choice of Deputy Sergeant Mel Bruce for Ramsbottom's undercover assignment, but she had been the only police officer who had a realistic chance of getting downtown in time to follow Enoch Powell. What would she do if Ramsbottom was right and someone attacked Powell? Well, Sergeant Bruce didn't rightly know. Campbell stood about 5'2 in her dress boots and weighed about 120 tops. Oh well, should be just a surveillance job. What could go wrong? 
Ramsbottom heard about the injured police officer on his car radio. He headed over to Derry's in time to see Constable Campbell being loaded into an ambulance. She was conscious, but sounded delirious to the attending paramedics. Not so to Sergeant Ramsbottom. He was big. Oh, geez, he was big. He ran right through me like I wasn't there. Can you describe him, Constable? She hesitated. If he was a nursery rhyme character, said the sergeant, who would he be? Humpty Dumpty, she said, before she could stop herself, and Ramsbottom had his confirmation. Someone, a very large someone, really was trying to kill Enoch Powell. The hunterman was unraveling. Three times, three fucking times, three times, three fucking times. The chant unrolled in his head as he made it back to his car. How could he fail three times, three fucking times? No, he shouted at himself. I did not fail. I prepared for this. I still have one more chance. He headed back to the bastard suburb this time taking the high road to position himself above the tree line. Enoch made it home, feeling better about things. The drive had allowed him to think rationally. That and the sight of the mad giant on the pathway trying to do, well, God knows what, had cheered him up and put to rest his anxiety about his wife. Of course she loves me, he said. And this time he meant it. Instead of heading for his study, Enoch celebrated his good mood by taking two beers from the fridge and going outside to sit on the lounger. The combination of the beers and his earlier anxiety soon put him to sleep. When Portia came home, he was still out there, warbling gentle snores through slightly open lips. Oh, Enoch, she said, you haven't written a word, have you? Saul Coleman will be coming by after dinner, and he'll be ever so disappointed that you have nothing for him. Ah, but that's where you're wrong. I have the kernel of an idea that I might just nibble at for a while to see where it goes. Well, while you're nibbling away, take Misery for a walk. Don't give me that look. You know she sleeps better at night after you've walked her. Take her the long way around this time up the escarpment to the lookout point. I don't expect to see you for at least 45 minutes. Enoch knew better than to argue with Portia when she was in her motherly mode. Besides, he always took Misery off the leash up there, half hoping she'd head for the horizon. Enoch started to think of the breed of dog they could buy if the beagle ran away. A proper dog, like a Great Dane maybe, or an Irish wolfhound. Something with dignity. And brains. The hunterman had taken almost an hour to walk the half mile along the path to the top of the escarpment. When he got there, he thought his heart was going to pound out of his chest. From the top, amid the boulders at the edge of the cliff, he had a 360-degree view of his surroundings. If the bastard came out the back door, he had a downward shot of about 150 yards. He sat there, heart heaving, hands shaking. He suspected that if he'd ever read the instructions for the crossbow, he'd have discovered it didn't have anywhere near that range, and even if it did, he was in no shape to make the shot. 
He wanted to wail at the injustice of it all. He had spent every last cent he owned on this trip, and now to have come so far and not succeeded, well, that was a short, sharp description of his life. Mr. Not Quite. Mr. Didn't Make It. Mr. Nearly. He happened to be looking down at the bastard's back door when he saw him come out with his dog on a leash. The hunterman had been up here every day during the past week, scouting around, trying to find the best way to kill him. He didn't know much, but he did know that whenever they set off on the northern path, they were on their longer walk, the one up the escarpment, straight toward him. He unpacked the crossbow. Halfway up the hill, Enoch let the beagle off its leash and said to her, Go! Run away! Head for the horizon! Misery galloped off, following her nose, making her own path, no doubt tracking the faintest hint of food in the next province. Enoch kept walking up the path, trying to turn his idea into something he could tack onto his impossible start to a short story. He wrestled with it as he continued up the slope, and he had just about reached the final turn before the last part of the path, across the clearing to the rocky outcrop, when he stopped, defeated. He just couldn't get round that impossible beginning. Nobody could finish a story with that start, he said. Nobody answered. The hunterman was poised to let fly. He had the crossbow leaning on his jacket on a rock, aimed at the last turn on the path. His breathing had slowed to the point where it sounded like a bloodhound, as opposed to a steam train, and he was ready as he'd ever be. He heard the bastard's footsteps, then nothing. Where was he? Why wasn't he coming? It was at that moment that misery, tracking a long-lost french fry through the trees, came up behind the hunterman looking for food. She climbed on the rock next to him, leaned over for a taste, and licked the hunterman on his ear and cheek. The hunterman, wound up to a nervous pile of ticks and twitches, seemed to jolt six inches into the air. It was the final shock to his overloaded, overjaded system, and his heart had already stopped before he toppled over the edge of the cliff face. Enoch, having worked out all the flaws in his kernel of an idea, turned the corner in despair to see Misery, looking very pleased with herself, sitting on top of a rock like a lion on its throne. Come on, then, he said. Maybe I'll be luckier tomorrow. Four hours later, after Enoch had endured the disapproval of Portia and the disavowal of Saul Coldman, the doorbell rang. It was Sergeant Ramsbottom. Honey, said Enoch, someone fell off the trail and the police want us to look at his picture. He peered at it. You know, I saw him on the car park path today. He was behaving very strangely, and I actually thought I knew him from somewhere. I'm sorry, I can't remember. Portia didn't know either, and the sergeant was about to leave when Saul Coldman came back from the bathroom. In for a penny, he thought. Mr. Coldman is a visitor. He can't possibly help you, said Portia. I'm trying to find out if he was seen anywhere today said the sergeant. He showed the picture. 
My word, said Coldman. That's Adagio Hunter. Who, said the sergeant and Enoch in chorus. Adagio Hunter, wannabe writer, talent in inverse proportion to his size. He is a big lad, isn't he? I've remembered now where I know him from, said Enoch. He was at the Page Turner Awards. You beat him into sixth place, said Coldman. That was the closest he ever got to an award. Didn't he end up in a loony bin somewhere? Portia started to giggle. I'm sorry, but I've just remembered what he did at the awards banquet. He was announced as sixth place, and then you won fifth. Well, as you headed toward the stage, he shouted that he was going to get you some day. Then he called you a bastard. Charming, said Enoch. I wonder what he was doing in Fort Clearwater. Well, said Sergeant Ramsbottom, if you have some time, I think I have a story for you. The End Thank you for listening to Writer's Block by Kevin Thornton from World Enough in Crime, an anthology of crime stories brought to you by Carrick Publishing in 2016. And now let's give a big Dead to Rights welcome to deadly friend Kevin P. Thornton. Kevin is a five-time Arthur Ellis Award finalist, a short story writer, and a published poet of work that actually rhymes. Born in Kenya, he counts North America as the fourth continent where he has lived and worked. He now resides in the frozen north of Canada. It is well named. His ramblings and his strange sense of humor can be found at his blog spot, The Old Fort Amusing from the Oil Sands, blogspot.ca, as well as on Facebook. Let it rock. Hello? Hello, is this Kevin Thornton? It is indeed. It is indeed. I knew it was. I knew it was. How are you this morning, Kevin? Wonderful. The better for hearing your voice. Excellent. Welcome to Dead to Rights. I'm glad to have you on the show. Um, So, what's the weather like in Alberta right now? It's not too bad for January. It's minus 32. (laughs) You you softies in Ontario probably. I lived in Saskatchewan for five years, I'll have you know. (laughs) Ah, so you're okay. You're experienced. I am experienced, yes, absolutely. Up near Yorkton. I don't know if you know where that is. I do. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, I asked you on because I was fascinated with your story, Writer's Block, which was featured in World Enough and Crime. It was shortlisted for the Arthur Ellis Award for Best Short Story, and I found it just hysterical. Even when I was reading it again for this podcast, I just laughed out loud and had to turn off the recording at a number of spots. Um, It speaks highly for your work that it was shortlisted for that award, and that must be gratifying, but I bet you'd like to win. I think you've actually been shortlisted for quite a number of awards, haven't you? I've had six in the Crime Writers of Canada. That particular one for short story, uh, we were all beaten into second place by a lady called Margaret Atwood. Oh, yes. I've heard if she she carries on, I hear she's going to have quite a good career one day. Yes, yes, I know. Well, she's a good person to be beaten by. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think that she should have some sympathy on the rest of us who keep being bridesmaids, you know. She should throw the bouquet over our way for a change, I think. You're right, though. If you're going to get beaten, it's nice to be beaten by the best, that's for sure. Yes, absolutely. Margaret Atwood. I mean, I love, I'm loving what they've done with um, 
The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, some people hate it and some people love it. There aren't a lot of in-betweens. I'm one of the ones who loves it. I found Margaret Atwood, I love Margaret Atwood, who wouldn't if they're Canadian, but I always found her a little bit hard to read. She's a little bit heavy, but what they did with it in the show is just wonderful, I think. Yes, they had to have it. They, they, they kind of captured it. It's, it's very seldom that uh, books translate well to the screen, but they've, they've caught that one pretty well. I think so. I think so. And in giving it action and color the way they have, I think they've, in some ways, they may have improved it. I mean, it was always a, a timeless story anyway. I'm not knocking it. But um, I, as I said, for me personally, I've often found her a bit hard to read because it, she is a bit thick in, in the words. But um, once you put the color and action in, it just grabs me. I just love it. And there's maybe a theme for another show of yours one day. Pro probably going to be a very short one. Books that have become better by being put on the screen. <laughs> yes, a very short one. <laughs> oh, Kevin, now I want to talk to you a little bit about your history that brought you to writing. You've had a lot of travel in your past. Um, I believe you were born in Kenya. And you've been in the military, right. and you've spent time in Africa, Dubai, England, Afghanistan, New Zealand, and Ontario. You made it to Ontario. Wow. I, I was in Ontario long enough that I know that you pronounce Toronto, Toronto, and not Toronto. Exactly. So unless, we're calling our, unless we're calling ourselves Torontonians, then, it, then you do get that uh, second T in there. But otherwise, it's Toronto. How That's else right. do you think they made Hey Little Donna from Toronto, you know? <laughs> it wouldn't have worked otherwise, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. I, I did do some traveling. My my father, um, my, my my brothers are all a lot older than me, so my father was in his late forties when I was born, and had served in World War Two. And at the end of World War Two, saw the austerity in Great Britain and said, "Right, we're getting out of here." So he he worked for colonial service in Africa, and then. When Africa started to change and become more dangerous, we went to New Zealand, and then we couldn't stay away from Africa, so we went back, and then life seems to have been one travel after another since then. Although, having said that, I have now been 12 years in Fort McMurray and have no plans to leave. Yeah, Fort McMurray, I mean, Alberta is a lovely province if you can stomach the weather. Um, all those prairie provinces, I love them. I've often dreamed about going back to Saskatchewan. And then I remember 45 below Fahrenheit, you know, and that's on a good day. And I remember my father taking the car battery into the house at night, and it had a better bed than I had, you know. Um, and then, <laughs> and it just reminds me, maybe I'll just stay here in Toronto, <laughs> Once it gets over minus 20, cold is cold. And, and really what it is then is just how long you can stay outside. Yes. But when I first came up here in, in, the, in the January of 2006, and it was minus 42 outside, and I was standing waiting for a bus, and the metal rivets on my jeans froze to my butt. <laughs> and I thought, why am I here? Especially the six months before I'd been in Afghanistan, and the temperature was in the plus 40s. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. That's quite a transition, I'm telling you. You know, But it gives you a lot of fodder for writing, I think. I can remember in Saskatchewan when we would go home for lunch. We had to walk home for lunch. This is not one of those stories I tell my children. But the teachers would warn us, remember now, don't stop on the way home because your blood will freeze. You know, if you stop, if you don't keep moving. And I can remember the radio in the morning before we'd leave would say, pull your scarf over your face or your lungs will freeze. 
you know? Yeah, and and uh, I have an eight-year-old in, in junior school at the moment, and uh, I think the regulation is if the combination of the temperature and the wind chill takes the outside to below minus 26, the kids are not allowed to wait outside and they don't play outside. Yes. Now, to somebody from Alberta or Saskatchewan, that seems perfectly reasonable. Mm-hmm. When I talk to family and friends in Johannesburg or Cape Town <laughs> or Melbourne or Brisbane, and they, I tell them that, they don't know what minus 26 is. Yeah, they can't, heard of it. they can't envision it. They can't, you know. It's like the opposite of the boiling frog. If you boil him slowly enough, he doesn't notice. If they if they freeze us slowly enough, then we'll end up staying in Alberta. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, that brings me to what I, w- I want to talk to you a little bit about your humor because you're a really funny guy, Kevin. We've met a few times at a, a few different uh, conferences and um and at the Crime Writers of Canada general meetings we've met and at the Arthur Ellis Awards banquets. And uh, every time I see you, I laugh. And I've got this huge smile on right now, even just talking to you. And um, I know this is setting you up. I mean, what do you say to that? But uh, it comes through in your writing in a way that people laugh out loud. And this is why you keep making it into the awards nominations. Um, what do you think is the basis of your general irreverence? I think growing up with three older brothers and two two parents who are much older meant that I grew up very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we ever if we get, if we get around to talking about writing influences, I was reading Jack Higgins at the age of six mm-hmm. and uh, Hammond Innes and Neville Shute and those those classic suspense thriller writers from the 50s and 60s were all on our bookshelves. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, also hanging around with a bunch of Englishmen and, and a Scottish mother, your sense of humour would develop naturally. Oh, yeah. Now, my wife would... My wife will tell you that I'm not funny because she's heard everything I've said 25 times. Now she says the first two or three times they're amusing, uh-huh. but really you have to you have to pay her to keep her around right now. <laughs> but that's what happens, I, you I, know, I, in married couples. That's quite normal. I hope you know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think the secret is get in, tell a good joke, or, or, or say something mildly humorous. And get out before you become boring. Yes, I don't think my husband finds me nearly as charming anymore as the rest of the world at large does, she said, rolling <laughs> her eyes. <laughs> well, we'll have to have a word for him, a word with him next time we're at the Arthur Ellis Awards. Yes, yes, of course. Um, now, my daughter, actually, she reads way beyond her age and always has. So that, there's something in that being, were you the youngest child? I was. Okay, I think there's something in that. I think about um, some inner desire to grow up faster. My daughter has always read way above her level. And people are always asking, oh, what would be a good book to give Tammy? I've got a lot of young adult writers that I'd like to share with her. Um, I had somebody just the other day, and I hope she's not listening to this. (laughs) Tammy is reading, like she reads Dennis Lehane. You know, she reads... um, Uh, I'm trying to come up with some names, and of course I can't right now, but she reads all the, the, she loves thrillers, you know, she she loves Stephen King, I think she may be Stephen King's number one fan, he better look out. <laughs> well, well, I mean, she has good taste there, because uh, once he got uh, away from his, his pure horror of the early books, uh, so he, he has written some magnificent stuff. Oh, he really and has. His, his book on writing is possibly one of the two or three best books for, for writers to read. Okay, well, there's our first tip for writers today. Get your hands on uh, Stephen King. And what's the title of the book? It's called On Writing. On Writing. And uh, 
I didn't want to butcher it. I knew it was something like that, but I didn't want to butcher it, you know. <laughs> yeah, but, but between him and, and Lawrence Block is the other guy. Lawrence Block. I love Lawrence Block, yeah. Yeah, uh, he's written a lot of stuff about writing. He used to have a column in Writer's Digest for years and years, and he put them all together. But I think if, you, if, if, if you're a writer and you want to know how to write, go and read Stephen King's on writing. Go and read anything by Lawrence Block about writing. And do not read all these silly lists by people on how to write. Mm-hmm. Elmore Leonard and Monsignor Ronald Knox are the two guiltiest parties. Uh, everybody thinks Elmore Leonard's list on writing rules is, is so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, never open a book with weather. Uh, as you said a couple of weeks ago, when you, I think you were talking to, to Dorothy. It was Dorothy. Dorothy be, said the same thing that you're saying. Isn't that yeah. funny? Yeah. What would have happened to Dickens? <laughs> I know. I know. And, uh, and, and, and Ronald Knox was even worse because, okay, he, he did have his tongue slightly in his cheek, but when he was writing the rules of golden age detective fiction, mm-hmm. one of the things he wrote was no Chinaman was figuring the story, oh. thereby taking out 4,000 years of literary history just by saying, well, we're not going to have any of that. Yeah, yeah, that's just insane. I know. <laughs> I know, because, I mean, I've been a fan. I've been a fan of these gumshoe books for as long as I can remember. I mean, there were, when I was growing up, there were two genres that really stayed with me. One was the Columbo genre, the Rumpled Detective. I mean, anything like that I just loved. And the other one was um, sort of historical Celtic style fiction. And um, that kind of caught my whimsy side a little bit more, although it never really stuck. But the detective stuck with me my whole life. And me as well. I've, uh, I've been a detective fiction fan oh, since I was six, seven, let's say eight years old. So when did, you first, when did you first discover that you were the class clown? Actually, funnily enough, I never was. It was <laughs> only when I got to university. And at, at school, I was uh, in an all-boys school. That's what they did with Irish Catholic kids back in those days. And then I went to an all-boys boarding school, <clears throat> which means you graduate and learning how to smoke and drink and play rugby. Mm-hmm. And uh, but there's a, there's a very strong hierarchy in boarding schools, and if you weren't part of the the top echelon, you weren't allowed to be funny because you'd get into trouble. Oh, so you learn very you learn very quickly to keep your nose down and stay out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I got to university and the, the chains were unfettered, then uh, well, I took two years to do first year and I took two years to do second year. So I, I had a lot of fun at university, not much of it academic. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of a common story, isn't it? It's like, uh, I've heard that a few times, funnily. <laughs> yes, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kevin, I heard that you actually had a thing for the poets, and I know I always did, too. Um, I used to write poetry from the time I could walk, pretty much, although very little of it has ever been made public. But I hear that you also had the same kind of stint. Yeah, I, I've had some published, and uh, again... Uh, they've they've sold like dozens of copies all of them, and uh, <laughs> so basically a bestseller. Yeah, basically a bestseller if it sold dozens of copies. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I I find my sense of humor gets in the way, and I'll start writing something serious, and then by the time I get to line three, I get into that da 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 kind of verse, yes. and I'm looking, I'm thinking, I've written another damn limerick. Mm-hmm. But uh, but if well. Here's a tip for writers. If you want to learn the rhythm 
angst-driven crap where people sort of put four words on a page and say, oh, my heart is drenched, give that garbage up. Mm-hmm. My, my, my favorite, and it may be the most important 12 lines in the English language, is by the English guy from the mid-20th century, Philip Larkin. Mm-hmm. And it's called This Be The Verse. Could you indulge me here for a, a minute, Donna? Please, please, I'd love to hear it. This Be The Verse. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can. I don't have any kids yourself. <laughs> I'm sorry, that just tickles my face. I know, I love I'm that. Married. I really love that. And of course, both you and I have kids, so we didn't listen to it. <laughs> and I'm sure we no, fucked no, them up royally. <laughs> well, I, I, I think the best part was when in, in my Irish Catholic education, that's a, run by the Christian Brothers in Pretoria in South Africa, and we were asked to read our favorite poem. And yes, I did dig that one out. Oh, good. The English teacher, Father Mackay, gave me an A for effort, and then the headmaster gave me a serious talking to. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, but you do, you raise a really good point there, because for our listeners, um, one of the best tips I could give, and I never even thought of giving it, so thanks, Kevin, is please read some of the poets, and especially the good ones, the ones that are relevant, not just wringing their hands, because getting a poetic cadence in your prose it's really important if you want readers to come back. It's one thing that they say you had a great story and they were riveted, but if you want them to love you, get a cadence to your prose, you know? Yes, and then, and then the ones that I would recommend are people like Philip Larkin, who writes simple stuff, mm-hmm. W.H. Auden, and uh, Whitman, the American. Of course, if you want simple yet profound, there's nothing better than Emily Dickinson. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's funny, you can find this kind of, the feeling that I'm talking about, you can find it anywhere. Alec and I have been talking a lot lately about the actors, the actors from Great Britain. They all go to elocution school and they learn how to use their voices in a way that I would love to be able to use my voice like that. I mean, I I think it's magnificent. It's nothing. And I'll give you an example. We rewatched I, Claudius over the last uh, couple of weeks. Now, oh, isn't that wonderful? You remember when it came out? When when did it come out? Was it late seventies, early eighties, something like that, or yeah. was was it even it's later? I'm not something sure. Something like that, and, and, and you'll see so many actors in there that are now the wizened old guy at the back of a Midsummer Murders thing. Yes, yes. But the thing about it is, it stood up, and almost everything from that time period doesn't, because you know that the writing seems old fashioned. The you know that everything seems old fashioned, but. We rewatched I, Claudius, and I dare anyone to watch it and find a flaw with it. It was impeccable, and it held up, and the kids were absolutely riveted by it. It was just impeccable. And uh, I think it's because it relied on real writing and real acting and real vocals rather than just whatever is in the moment. Now, on that one side, you have Derek Jacoby in there, who's just one of the men great actors in there doing yeah. I Claudius and at the same time on the other side of the pond you had Rocky and 
Rambo and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes. Upset. Yes, yes. So, writers, stop trying to be just in the moment. You've got to be somewhat in the moment, of course, but don't base your entire work on being in the moment. Look for something a little deeper, a little more classic, a little more universal, so it can hold up. I shall, I shall use it myself. Yes, there you go. But I loved your story. It was really funny, and I, I know that our listeners are going to get a real kick out of it. I hope you enjoy hearing me read it back, because uh, you're probably going to say, that's not what I meant. She's using the wrong voice. But uh, I had to stop because I was laughing a number of times through it. I'm going to love it. And, and here's, here's one little tip for anybody who's listening. There is a point where you they talk about the beagle mm -hmm. called misery. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are not reading it, that is actually spelled M-I-S-R-I. -I. The beagle in the book is named after my very good friend, Angela Misery, who mm. writes Sherlock Holmes' young adult fiction. There you go. And as a member of the and as a member of the Canada as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love the part about Misery, by the way. And, you know, it never occurred to me to tell people how it was spelled. So thank you, because uh, it is spelled M-I-S-R-I, -I, and it's a real hoot. Like, uh, any other authors you can throw out for our listeners that, that you love to read? Well, fun funnily enough, just, just thinking back to, to my university days, I, I studied English literature in Johannesburg at the university there. And I was lectured by two future Nobel Literature Prize winners. Nadine Gordimer was one of them, mm -hmm. and and J. M. Kutsia. And I love both of their their their, their, their collections because they're they're wonderful South African writers. Okay, say that again. Nadine Gordimer. Na Nadine Gordimer. Mm -hmm. And J. M. Kutsia. Okay. Any idea how to spell Kutsia? C o e t z e e. Okay. Okay. Very good. So people can look look it up. You know. <laughs> Yeah, just to make it a little bit easier for people like me, you know, who may be somewhat illiterate. <laughs> and, and, and especially for people like me with strange accents. I, I, I always say. Oh, no, your accent is very clear, Kevin. No worries there. Um, now, this brings us to the tips section. I know we kind of touched on tips a little bit already, but what tips do you give for new writers? Well, we were discussing Stephen King a little bit earlier there, and. Uh, and Stephen King blows this one right out of the water. I was on a panel a couple of years ago, one of the, the, the last Bloody Words conferences, and there was a guy sitting at the other, other end who says, best advice I can give anybody is write about what you know. Uh -huh. And I'm sitting at the other end, and I'm saying, uh, no, no, because if you did that, Stephen King wouldn't have a career, and science fiction wouldn't exist. That's right, that's right. And not only that, but as a writer, aren't you kind of expecting yourself to stretch yourself just a little I mean, this Which leads me to something. Yeah. Sorry, you were saying. Oh, it just it um, just annoys the hell out of me that people think that um, you know if you're an accounting clerk, all you should ever write about is accounting. Like you know, I mean, it's just absurd. Can you not learn more? Can you not research? Can you not study? Can you not travel? I mean. Before I found my niche as a writer, and uh, and and uh, I must thank the Crime Writers of Canada for breaking free of the bondage of a lifetime in logistics and supply chain. Uh, if I had to write about supply chain, well, just, just mentioning it has probably put you to sleep. <laughs> what was that you that said? Wait, wait a minute. Let me just wake up now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, I know. I would say the, the, the tip is break the rules if you can. 
uh, and avoid cliches. And especially when it comes to short stories, here's, here's perhaps the most important tip for short stories because in the big novel world, there are two kinds of people. There are the people who write to a plan and the people who don't. And both of them can be successful. Mm-hmm. In a short story, I think you have to have a plan. You have to have an end point in mind. Mm-hmm. And that is especially true in detective fiction and crime writing because you have a limited space yes. to get... Uh, you have to get the protagonist in, you have to get them to solve the crime, and it has to have a nice twist at the end. And there has to be a reason to read it, too. Going. You have to actually get to like the character in a very short, in a very short span. You know, if you don't like the character, even a short piece is too long to read. And funnily enough, that's why I've been dabbling in Sherlock Holmes pastiches, because I have all these locked room and impossible crime stories in my head waiting to come out. Mm-hmm. And, and the short story is great for that, except you have to spend so much time setting it up that you have 52 words at the end to sort of say, well, here's the crime, it's a locked room, this is how we solved it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So if you do it in a Sherlock Holmes setting, you don't have to set up anything. Everybody knows who Sherlock Holmes is. Everybody knows who Dr. Watson is. You can pretty much start with, they were sitting in their sitting room at 221B Baker Street. Yes. Somebody knocked at the door. And mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah, and now your story begins. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. no, you're absolutely right. Um, that is one thing about fan fiction that uh, I guess is a real draw for a lot of writers because they don't have to do the backstory. They don't have to do any of that. And, of course, the most famous of the fan, fan fiction is the Sherlock Holmes ones. That's right. In fact, right. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy in Calgary, uh, Charles Prepolek, who's just bringing out a collection. This year. He's brought out three collections, the Gaslight Collections. Uh, well worth reading if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan. The Gaslight uh, Collections for our for our listeners. And and who's the, the gentleman that's writing it again? Charles, well, he, he's the editor, Charles Prepolek. I, I, I should pick people who have easier names, shouldn't I? <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, Kevin, but yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> no, I'm just the kidding. Editor, Charles Preck. The other editor is J.R. Campbell, so. J.R. Campbell, there you go. You can look up J.R. Campbell, the Gaslight Collection. And uh, Charles, what letter does Prepolic. he? <laughs> P-R-E-P-O-L-E-C. Sorry, Charles. Guy. You know, uh, there's an old saying, call me whatever you like, but don't call me late for dinner. Sorry, Charles, I apologize right here and now for not getting your name. (laughs) She'll she'll get you on the show one day, Charles, and then you can sort her out. That's right. You can spell it for our listeners, yes. (laughs) You know what I've been doing? Because I've been reading all these stories, I've been reading all these stories by authors, and um, they use words that I I know the words, of course, because I read a lot, but I don't necessarily... But you can't pronounce it. I can't pronounce the damn things. It kills me. You know how many times I'm pressing uh, the record button to stop recording and going into Google pronounce? Like, <laughs> the kids are just roaring because <laughs> it's oh. just crazy. And I, and, and I watch both of my sons. I have, I have one who's 23 and one who's eight. Both of them avid readers. And if they read something out and they mispronounce something, I'm saying, yes, they are readers because they don't know how to pronounce words. I know, I know. And, you know, my son is really having it back at me because I'm forever telling him, learn your language when he mispronounces something. He rolls his eyes at me and he's like, Mom, you knew what I meant. I'm like, learn your language. And now he can throw it right back at me. Learn your damn language. So really it's been an education for me reading these stories because I get to go to Google and listen to how the word is really pronounced. Well, well, here's the here's the best one that's ever been in the thoughts of family history. 
For those of you in Ontario, you will know that there's a city to the west of Toronto called Guelph. Mm-hmm. And it comes from, I think, an ancient German or Austrian name. Or, I'm not too sure of the history. My late sister-in-law, who was from Johannesburg, saw that sign and spent the next six months pronouncing it Galoof. <laughs> and it is now stuck in the family. That city is never Guelph in our family. It's now Galoof all uh-huh. the time. Uh-huh. Yeah, I love and it. I, 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 think, I think it's better. Yes, it is. Galoof. I'm going to be calling it Galoof forever now. <laughs> we might start a trend. Yes, yes, absolutely. There you go. Well, Kevin, really thank you. It's been wonderful having you on the show. And I hope that you'll come back on again because I know we've got lots more to talk about. Uh, things that I've forgotten today. It's a beautiful Sunday here in Toronto. It's like only, you know, I think it's above freezing. Maybe not, maybe not. I'm looking outside. Maybe it's not above freezing, but it's certainly nice anyway. The sky's blue, and and you said it was, what, 20 below there? Minus 32 this morning. Minus 32. Oh, lovely. Oh, joy. Oh, bliss. <laughs> yeah. We'll see, you. we'll see you in May at the Arthur Ellis Awards. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'll be there, and I think that we'll also be having the, um, we'll be having the general meeting, right? Is it yes. tied in this year, the general meeting? It's, it's normally in the, on the afternoon of the awards. Yes, yes. So I'll see you there for sure. Yes. Thank you, Kevin. Have a great day. Thank you very much, Donna. Let it rock. I've got to send a shout out to Kevin Thornton, thanking him for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is Dead to Rights Pod. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick or at my website, DonnaCarrick.com. If you're a published author and would like to join our listeners on the pod, contact me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and say, schedule me for an interview. Join us next week when we rub shoulders with professional editor and author Tony Rakestraw of Rakestraw Book Design. Our story next week for Readers on the Run will feature The Melancholic Fog Harvester by Alec Carrick. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, who also brought us the original story scoring music. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.